Good morning, good morning, good morning, everybody. I brought my falcon out about a year and a half ago now and taught on the lessons that I had learned as a falconer. And so I thought I would bring her out again just because we've been bringing her out and training her again. She's been doing shows. She's been doing amazing shows, actually. Every year she gets better. And, and um, I got to almost watch it now because she likes to cut in so close to the kids that the kids are getting clipped by the feathers as she goes by. And um, so we have to lay down the rules very carefully. Do not put your hands in the air when she's flying over top of your head because, you know, not only does she have sharp talons, but a bird doing 100 miles an hour over top of your head and you, it's... Uh, probably dangerous for both parties at that point. But she's loving what she's doing. And so this is Summer. She's my lanner falcon. And I called her Summer because I had another falcon named Olaf. I named him Olaf for the kids because he was white. And then she came along and so I thought I would name her Summer. And so we lost Olaf last year, actually. He flew away in one of the shows. It was 30-some degrees weather. And and uh, I probably made a bad call in flying him, and he flew away in a show, and we have transmitters on the birds, and it was the one time that my transmitter failed, and by the time she was caught, she ended up, she ended up died. She was in Langley City and Glover Road in the middle of the night, and, um, which is really sad. Um, he spent a lot of time um, uh, raising these birds up, and so he was, he was a great show bird as well. But, uh, so this is Summer. He was a, a half peregrine, half jeer falcon, which are native to BC, and Summer's a lanner falcon, which is not native to BC. Europe and Asia, that's where they, they mostly hang out, and, but she's a really cool um, show bird. So she was captive bred, and I bought her out of a captive bred facility. A guy actually bred her in Prince Edward Island and, and shipped her to me. So she's a female, and her name is Summer. And so a year and a half ago, like I said, I taught on the lessons that I'd learned in falconry, and we're going to share a couple of those over the next couple of weeks, but I've actually learned a new lessons as well over this last year in simply just dealing with falconry, and it's amazing how God will teach us through different situations, and that's why we always have to be open to our daily lives, because, you know, sometimes we think we open the Bible, oh, God's going to teach us something. Well, no, God never stops teaching us at all, and no matter where you are in life along your day, in the ups and the downs or just the medium moments, God is teaching us. And so we need to always be aware and open our eyes because he teaches us through various different things. Now, the word is what he gives to us when he teaches, but he will use experience to impart his word to us. And so falconry is actually an amazing, amazing sport. It's one of the oldest sports. And everything I do, because I love outdoors and I love hunting, um, I got into it for that purpose. Falconry simply means, you know, the art of using a bird of prey for hunting. And so all the birds, except for her, she came just in as a show bird, but as the, I've had the birds over the years, I've hunted with my birds. And so um, with the Harris hawks, um, they like more ground prey, and they just kind of go from tree to tree and um, hang out and, and sit still and, and wait for something to move, and they hunt it. But falcons a little bit different. They like to be really high in the sky, and they like to hover over, not hover, but they like to be moving the hawks you'll see soaring in the air, but falcons are usually pumping and doing a little bit of soaring, but really just getting up high enough so that the first thing they see, because not many things can outrun these things. Matter of fact, nothing can outrun them if, if they get a jump on them. They are the fastest animal in the world. The cheetah is the fastest land animal, but they're the fastest animal. And they get up top, and if they see, for instance, falcons love pigeons and they love ducks, and if they see a duck get too close in their cone underneath them, they just stoop up and they do 300 and some odd kilometers an hour. They do two, over 225 miles an hour um, in a stoop, 
and they come down and they hit their prey with these talons here. They're very sharp, but the back talon faces the other way. And they come at, like I said, hundreds of miles an hour with their back talon and come across their prey. And it is like a bullet um, hitting an animal. It is an amazing thing to see. And a matter of fact, when I was doing it in Glen Valley, I don't have a lot of time to do it anymore. And so, because it takes up a lot of your time, but I would be out every morning, early, early, early training and hunting these birds. And uh, I used to start with kites training them. And then I moved on to drones when drones came in. And it's a lot easier to deal with a drone huh? training these things. But you get them up into thousands of feet in the air, 1,800, 2,000 feet in the air. And uh, when they see prey below, like I said, um, Glen Valley at six, seven o'clock in the morning when there's not much noise around, you can hear the break of the air as they come down. You literally hear the coming through the air. And it's absolutely amazing until you hear the thud on the animal. And uh, they think it's amazing after that. I don't think the animal, uh, the other animal thinks it's amazing at that point, but amazing. I also love falconry because the history, it is one of the oldest sports and truly is the sport of kings, actually. You weren't even allowed to, in certain areas and certain countries, own certain birds of prey unless you were royalty. And it depended on what royalty you were, which bird of prey you were allowed to own. And the falcons um, in most areas, other than a goshawk in, in one of the areas, but the falcons in most areas were reserved for princes uh, and kings. And, uh, and so you couldn't even get your hands on one. And so it's pretty amazing. Now we're sitting here. I've got a falcon on my hand, and although I'm not royalty in uh, the physical realm, I certainly am in the spiritual realm like all of us. So I love falconry. But the most amazing thing about me loving falconry is 10 years ago, just over 10 years ago now, I guess it would have been 08 or 09, yeah. So about 10 years ago, I had a complete phobia of birds. And I don't mean a little phobia. I mean, if anybody has any phobias, a large phobia. And so, and it wasn't just scary birds of prey that could grab you and hurt, you know, hurt you. Um, I was scared of things like budgies. And it's not like I was scared of them over in the cage or them flying around, or even if I was in the barn, if a bird flew through, that was okay. But the moment I got locked in to an area that I didn't like and couldn't control and a bird would flutter, I would be absolutely in fear, absolute fear. And so I remember even being at a buddy's house one time and a budgie flew and landed on my head and I literally was petrified and I knew two things were going to happen. Either, either I was just going to die there of fear or if he didn't get this thing off my head, I was about to kill him and everything in the room. It was so bad. And if any of you ever have a phobia like that, I couldn't even move. It was frozen. And so that would happen anytime. Like if we had an injured bird in the barn or a pigeon, there's no way I could have picked it up. And I would have been fine till I got to it. But the moment that thing fluttered, I just, something in me was so scared. And there's a reason for it, and I don't have time to get into it. As, as a kid, I could see where the phobia came about. But literally, you know, in my late 30s, I still had this fear that I acted like a, just a child or worse when I would be enclosed with a bird that would flutter. And it was just a crazy thing. I think back now, and I can hardly explain it because I can't relate to it anymore. It seems just so foolish to me. But at the time, it was really real. And, you know, my wife can attest to it. It's, uh, um, it was scary. That, anything that flew. Remember that time that bat showed up in your uncle's house? And uh, this bat was in the house and it was on the kitchen counter. It was, it was uh, uh, not the normal little bats you see fly around here. We have another type of bat. I forget what it's called, but it's a little bit bigger. They're about like that when they're sitting on the counter with their wings kind of folded in. Their shoulders are like that. But it flew at us when we went, and I, 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 almost, I almost killed her, pushing her down the stairs to get out of the way. I wasn't going to protect her. I was gone first. 
but it was just reaction because I was so scared of things that fluttered. It was a complete phobia. And like I said, it almost seems hard to believe now. But about that time, I had a friend come into my life. He had been in the, around the church for a couple of years, and, and uh, many of you have met him. His name's Daniel. He's a miner, and he uh, should be back soon, actually, for a visit. He, he was mining up north, and he's one of the best plaster miners in all the world, and now he's in Chile mining. And, but he was into falconry. And before he got into mining, the reason why he even moved up north was because he wanted to be where the Jeer Falcons were flying around. And that's how he ended up in, up there, and that's how he got into mining. But he came down and he had all these birds, he had eagles, he had falcons, he had hawks. And he came and, and put a display on at one of our fairs. He brought a couple of his eagles and I didn't go anywhere near the eagles at the time. But that day afterwards, I just thought to myself, I said to myself, I'm going to get over this fear and I am going to break this thing. And I asked him if he would teach me falconry. And I thought, yeah, nothing like starting with a budgie or anything. No, let's start with a bird of prey. But I just thought, if I'm going to go for it, I'm going to go for it. Because at least this interested me enough, the hunting aspect and different things, to get into it. And so I asked him to teach me falconry. And so he went out and he got me a bird. And I started with the bird. And it was scary in the beginning. I could hardly touch the bird. And every time Daniel had it, he would be beside me. Yeah, he would like psych me out with the bird. And I would jump. And he wasn't nice all the time. But eventually, over time and dealing with the bird on a daily basis, on a daily basis, dealing with this bird because I had to and, and, and didn't do the right things all the time, but I had to deal with it daily. Over a certain amount of time, the fear started to subside, and now it had got to a point where I have zero fear of any of these things, you know, if I'm out trapping a, a wild bird, I could have a golden eagle that would come in and I would still feel comfortable. I mean, my heart would be racing because those things are big and tough and can hurt you, but I would be able to deal with the situation and hold the golden eagle and, and get him out um, what he needed to get out of. But anyways, so I started, decided I was going to take this thing head on. And that is the very first lesson, without me even knowing the lesson, that was the first lesson that I learned in falconry. And so the lesson number one was that we need to attack our fears head on. We need to attack our fears head on, because sometimes, many times, we don't attack them head on. And you know, I could get through life and no one would know that I was scared of this situation because it's very few times that I would end up in an enclosed building with a bird that was going to flutter around my head. So not a lot of people knew that I was scared of these birds. I could live life very easily, but there was this unknown situation to people that was very known to me that I was completely scared of. And it had to take me attacking my fears head on to be able to get over it. And so, so many things in life are undiscovered because of fear. They are. Like, I would have never been able to fly a bird. I would have never been able to hunt with a bird had I not been able to get through my fear. And now, during a period of my life, it was one of the most exciting times of my life being able to hunt with these birds of prey. And I would have missed that whole season of my life if I did not attack my fear head on. And I believe that many people in life do not experience life because they have fears and don't attack their fears head on. And that's just the way life is. You know, when I was uh, 20 to 22 or three years old, I lived in a, in a basement suite in, in North Burnaby in a nice big house. And friends of my parents owned the house and lifelong friends and, and their son and um, his wife were living in the top of the house. And so every night 
uh, Mark would come home and he rode a motorbike and he would come in and he would come through the, the basement door and then he would go up the stairs. But it was into the basement suite just a little bit and then he would go around the corner and, and up to the stairs. So he'd come through the door and he would put his coat in the closet and then he would carry on and go up the stairs. Well, one day I decided that I was going to hide in the closet when Mark got home. And so heard his motorbike coming. I got up out of the Chesterfield real quick, ran into the, to the closet where he was going to put his coat. His motorbike stopped. He came through the door. He opened the closet door, and I just went, wah! And he just about lost it. And he ran away from me first, thinking he was about to die, and then ran at me, and it was kind of a half a fight on until we kind of calmed down, and, and then we laughed about it afterwards. So he thought it was a one-off. Well, next day he came home. Same thing. I was hiding in the closet. Same eruption. And he freaked out. Third time. Happened in a row. I did it again. He freaked out again. And I can't remember how many this went on for. It wasn't very long. But all of a sudden, Mark quit putting his coat in the closet. He just came out of the garage and he went past the closet and he put his coat somewhere else. He completely changed the routine of his life because he didn't know if I was going to be in the closet or not to scare him. And as I look back on the story, I thought, man, this is how the enemy works in our lives. There was nothing that I was doing to Mark that was going to really physically hurt him. It just scared him half to death. He was fearful of the situation. And therefore, because he was fearful of the situation, he avoided the situation altogether. And that's how the enemy works in our life. He brings fear up in our life, whether it's a normal phobia or whether it's a fear of speaking or whether it's a fear of relationship or whether it's a fear of stepping out or whether it's a fear of business or whatever the fear may be that we've gotten into. A lot of people avoid life, not because they feel like they're not led or not because they feel like they don't want to do it. It's because they've been scared in an arena, something in that arena before, and therefore they avoid the entire situation altogether. And I hate that about life. I hate the fact that we do not do things in life because we're simply fearful of something in the situation. Right? Some people are scared to love again. Some people are scared to whatever it may be. But there's fear in people's life, and they have trouble moving on. And that's the way the enemy works. He can't stop you because he doesn't have the authority to stop you. But he can create situations in your life where you're fearful, and therefore you choose not to go in that direction. And so that's one of the first things that I learned. And I hate that. I hate it. Because we end up being a victim in our life, and that's how the enemy works. Dictates through fear. What got me thinking about this this week is I had some talks with the Wranglers in the evening, and it's nice. Camps are nice. The overnight camps are nice because sometimes the Wranglers will come and ask me some hard questions, and sometimes life's hard for them. And, and so we get into some real iron sharpened irons, and, and I pray for the Wranglers, but at the same time, I really challenge their life because I believe that, man, there's so much in these kids. I see it every year how great they get. And so I don't I don't dance around. I, I, you know, I, I come to the point about situations because, you know what, they're going to have to face life that is, that is harder than the situations oftentimes that they're in now. But some of their situations are very legit and very hard. Um, and so the problem is, though, is that we discussed this week was the shame of becoming a victim is that we never really understand who we are. The fear in that situation keeps us from doing something that we want to do and conquering the fear that we should be conquering. And therefore, we take another route, you know, for whatever reason, we convince ourselves that we're allowed to take another route, which is really just becoming a victim when we all do it. 
We convince ourselves to take another route because of the fear, but the fact is our life is altered and something that we could conquer is missed. And the worst part about being a victim is not the fact that you're being a victim. The worst part is that you never tap into what God has created you to be, to be able to deal with the situation that you are facing. And that is true. That's the problem with victimhood. It's not anything else other than you never tap into the full potential that God has created us to be. You see, God knew our entire lives before we were ever put here. He knew the troubles we would face. He knew we were in a fallen world. He knew the giftings and the talents he put in us. He knew what we would face. But everything we face, God gifted us in our very being. He gifted us to be able to take on that challenge and overcome it. That's why there is no quitters in Christ. And the wonderful part about it is he dwells on the inside of us, richly lives in our hearts. And so... Not only on the bad side of things that we take Jesus everywhere we go, but on the good side of things is he's with us everywhere we go and has created us to be an overcomer, created us to be more than a conqueror. And so the greatest part about walking away from a fear is you never understanding how tough you are. That is the biggest tragedy, is that walking away from a fear is not that you missed an opportunity. The greatest tragedy is you never find out how tough God made you to be, myself included. That's the tragedy. Ephesians 2.10 says this, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Just leave that there for a second. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. God made us. He made us from his works. And you know what? God doesn't create any failures. And in the same scripture, he says that we're created for good works that God prepared beforehand. We have all these works that we are to walk in life with, good works. Yet he knows everything that we're going to face and all the obstacles that we are going to face walking out these works. But he still creates us to walk these works out. So he knows when we hit a wall. He knows when we hit trouble. And so we need to face these fears dead on, not just because we get to enjoy falconry later or whatever it's going to be, but the worst part, like I said, is you never find out how tough you are, how tough God has created you to be if we don't walk this out. Philippians 4, 12 and 13, 13's a lot of people's life scripture, but 12 says, I know how to abase and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry both to abound and to suffer need. And I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now God gives the victory and he delivers us out of them all. But at the same time, we are going to have life. He never said life would be a bed of roses. He just said, I'll give you everything to go through life with. And at the end of the day, it's really not how much stuff we've done. It's did we find out who we are in Christ? And the biggest shame about turning away, like I said, is not the opportunity. It's not finding out just how tough you are in Christ. Isn't that awesome? Second thing, I'm just going to do two points today and then I'm running out of time. Number two, you get something out of point one because I sure did this morning when I was going over this. I tell you, I start thinking, how many more fears do I have that I'm just pretending aren't there that I need to attack head on? And there's lots. People hate confrontation, right? 
They do. Some people hate confrontation. Some people do not communicate well in confrontation. And they've learned their entire life either to be tough so that no one confronts them or to be a victim and start to cry so that no one confronts them. But nobody learns how to deal with it on a very good level so that you can work through a problem. How many problems do we not work through because we hate confrontation, right? Or we try to mow somebody over in confrontation or we try to avoid confrontation or we try to defect, deflect in confrontation. But the fact is we need confrontation in life to grow. Not only for, for us to grow in experience with people confronting us, but to find out who we are if we actually listen and actually walk through these situations without being so emotional and getting all mad and huffing off and all this other stuff, but actually growing in the situation, right? I was supposed to be over that, but I came back. Number two, very early on in the process of falconry, I learned how remarkably different birds of prey are to train. I've trained animals my whole life, dogs, horses, and uh, we've done pretty well at that stuff. But when I got into birds, I realized how completely different they are to train. Dogs, most of them just want to be around you. They, they do. They're just happy just to see you. You come home and they're just happy to see you. You're home, you're home, you're home, you're home, right? Dogs will do commands and tricks simply for a good boy. They will. You can get a dog to do anything. I'm working on second levels of bear right now for his hunt test. You can get a dog to do anything. Good boy, good boy. Right there, wagon. Yeah, do it again. Right? That's a dog. That's a dog. They easily forgive. You can do something you shouldn't do to your dog, which I do not suggest. We're supposed to be good stewards to our dogs, but they're easily to forgive. They'll forgive you until this next day. Oh, happy to see you again. Right? But when it comes to birds, it's way, way different. Birds do not care about affection. Watch this. He's like, get out, get out, don't. That's a bird. It's like, he doesn't like dogs. Will get, yeah, rub me more. Birds are like, hey, get your hands off. What you doing? <laughs> Completely different. Birds do not easily forgive. You do something wrong in training, and sometimes you can throw the whole deal for the rest of their training career. They do not easily forgive. Birds are always looking for a better opportunity. So the day I let them go and fly on their own for the first time and they go up and they have a real good view of what's going on, I have to make darn sure that they want to come back down to me because the moment they see another opportunity that looks better than me, they're on it. They don't hesitate. They're gone. And I have spent days tracking down birds because they were going after better opportunities. Days. And so they're always looking for better opportunities. And so the whole trick to training a bird is that you, I need to learn how to get them to want to work with me. Dogs, like I said, are just so easy. Birds are like, I have to trick that bird or teach that bird that he wants to work with me and for the bird's benefit. That's what has to happen. And so every time I take the bird out and I swing that lure and he comes down on that lure for weeks there's a big chunk of meat. Most of the time, we still put a piece of meat on the lure. We can get away with it now because after he gets the lure, he still gets a chunk of meat on the hand. But for weeks, but if you try to do with that with the lure in the beginning stages and you swing the lure, even though you've been feeding him on the lure and you do that a couple times and he hits that lure and he looks, there's no meat. Third time, he just gone. Why? Because why would he want to work with me if the, if the result 
is not going to be good for him. And that's so different than a dog. So different. And so I have to teach him that our working together is a benefit for her. It's a benefit. So every time she goes out, she hits the lure, she gets a meal. And then when she's up there and she sees all those birds flying around, she thinks, well, I could have a full crop, but I got to work really hard to do it. Or I could just come down and hit this lure. I know I get it every time I fly after this thing. It's a slow bird, that lure. And two or three passes, I nail this thing and I get a piece of meat and then I get half my crop filled at least, but I'm back out again tomorrow. I don't even have to hardly hunt again. And once you get that routine going, it took a long time. You can ask some of these wranglers in the early stages, she'd just sit in a tree and be like, I'm not coming back. I don't like the kids around that lure and I'm just going to hang out here. And uh, now she's turned into a good show bird because I've convinced her that life is going to be pretty easy hanging out with me. You still get to hunt. You still get to use your predator instinct. You still get to kill in your own head and you get a piece of meat at the end of it. And so that is so different than dealing with a dog. But boy, did it teach me how to deal with people as leaders, to deal with leaders. My goodness. Because there's people, when they get to a certain stage of life, just the necessities aren't good enough anymore. Just the water and the, the, the pat on the back and a good boy and the, you did a good job. It's just not good anymore. When I'm looking for leaders, those types of people, it's just, that's not satisfactory to them anymore. They want something completely different. And I tell you what, it made me think about what people need so I could work with people in a different way, leaders in a different way. First of all, leaders need a cause. They need a cause. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Why am I doing what I'm doing? And she thinks the same thing. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Because if all of a sudden she doesn't like what she's doing, she's gone. Second thing to deal with a leader that was differently for me is leaders need some victories in life. She needs to have a full crop once in a while. And every once in a while, we just top her right up and say, every once in a while, you just get there. You don't even have to eat for three days. We just filled you up so good. Now, she has little victories every day when she hits that lure, but every once in a while, I tell Stace, just feed her right up. Feed her right up and just let her sit there and lick her chops and pick the rest of the meat off her feet for the rest of the day. <laughs> kind of gross to us, but she loves it. You should see when I ask the kids if they want a piece of the quail that she's eating. There's always one dude that says, I'll try it, but most of them are like, oh, not me. As she's pulling the head off the quail in front of the kids. <laughs> Not alive, it's dead, it's frozen and thought out. So they need victories in their life. Taught me a lot. Also taught me that I need to learn in life, if I want to achieve things in life, that I have to learn to work with people more talented than myself in life. She's way more talented than me. Now, I've turned out to be a pretty good leader for her and she hangs around, she does good shows and everything like that. But she, this bird can go to 2,000 feet and stoop at 225 miles an hour and take out a bird. There's no way, no matter how much training I'm going to put in, am I going to be able to put it, do something like that? She's way more talented than I. But she still wants to hang around me. And that's one of the greatest things I've learned in falconry is that talented people aren't looking for people as talented as them. They're just looking for people that can help lead and give a cause and, and get some victories in life. And so I realized that, man, you can have some talented people as long as you give them that. This bird's way more talented than I am. But I could sit there in front of the show and she looks good. She flies all over the place and she comes in and hits that thing and the kids give her a big round of applause and I could never do it, but she'll do it for me. Isn't that cool? That's cool. So I learned that humility is a strength. It truly is. 
And I could say, look how wonderful she is. Look how amazing she is. And that's the same way with, with, with leadership is, is that, man, when you get in certain crowds, there are people that are so talented. But I don't have to be intimidated if I'm humble about the situation because I don't always have to compete with them as long as I can help lead a cause. Does that make sense? I think we do that in our families, right? It's like some families are very dominant and always keeping under their foot and, 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 and you know, never wanting son to be, you know, as tough or better than dad. And, and uh, I got to watch it because I better have a good relationship with my boy because two or three more years, he can be able to whoop me, that one. So he already puts me in some wrestling holds that make me hurt. I ain't tapped yet, but <laughs> he's getting close. But that's my goal for all these kids. I want them better than myself. And I know some people in their jobs and everything, they get so scared because somebody will take your job or somebody will take your position or somebody this or somebody that. But the fact is it works opposite in the kingdom of God. God wants our next generation, the people around us, to be better than we could be. But that's the key, is we think that we need to be so talented to be uh, desirable, to be coveted in the world, in the kingdom. It's no. You don't have to be the most talented, but you can be a good leader and help other people become talented, and you become the one that people want. That makes sense? I know I've shared this before, but the, the highest paid people in organizations are not the ones that are working on all the greatest inventions and doing the greatest things. The highest paid people in organizations today are the ones that can deal with people and keep people together. It's a gift, and it's a talent, and it has to be nurtured. And really, that's one of the things that we're really after with our youth. We really are, is teaching them to deal with people. It's the hardest thing to do, right? All right, so I'm out of time. So those are my first two points in falconry. Number one is we tack our fears head on. And number two is that um, this bird taught me that... Uh, to be a good leader in life, it's not like training a puppy dog. It's not expecting that these dogs are just going to come back to your feet no matter what you do. It's understanding that if you want people to really thrive and be talented like this in life, then we have to be good leaders. We have to create a cause. We have to give a reason for people to want to be there. And we have to learn how to lead rather than be talented. So, everybody give Summer a big round of applause. <laughs> Good girl. I'm going to take her hood off just so you can see her, and then we'll let everybody go. Let me pray first. Father, God, help us to learn from lessons in life. Give us and teach us through your word as we face experiences in life. Father, I thank you for your wisdom. I thank you for your experience. And I ask that you would grow us and take us from glory unto glory and from faith unto faith so that we would be more like you. God, every time we meet here in this place, it would be different than we walked in. In the name of Jesus, amen.